0: Okay, so in honor of Yom Yerushalayim being celebrated this coming Sunday, I wanted to speak about uh, a very, very far-flung topic, Yerushalayim, uh, and I didn't want to discuss something particularly esoteric. Although there are plenty of esoteric things and unlimited numbers of minutiae and detail about the beauty of Yerushalayim, the history and the archaeology and the Kedusha, and all sorts of things, I thought we would go right to the single most basic question that we could imagine. What is so important about Yerushalayim? Why is it such a big deal? Why do we seem to be obsessed with it for so long? And I think that uh, the answer to the question uh, perhaps might be somewhat surprising, and therefore it makes it even more important than it might appear at first glance. So, as a means of introduction, I just want to point out uh, the following, both as a nod to the a historical connection we have to Yerushalayim, as well as just to frame the relatively recent, or at least the modern events uh, that bring us back to 1967, which incredibly is 55 years ago. So just as a sense of historical perspective, take a look at the first source on your sheet, which is the Rambam, uh, and he says the following. The Rambam, even the first three words are very important. Umisoret biyad hakol. It is a well-known tradition everybody knows, everybody knows, right, now that itself is important, the Rambam doesn't say that about everything, in other words, this place, Yerushalayim, and of course, the central focus of Yerushalayim, the Harabai, is the place of the Beis HaMikdash, above, you know, where uh, we go with the Kotel, where you see those uh, domes, unfortunately now, everybody knows, says the Rambam, That as important as that place was, because the base of Mikdash was built there, that's not where it started. Yushalayim was way important, way before the base of Mikdash was born was built there. After all, everybody knows that that place is the place that Bono Ba Avram Hazbeach, Akad Yitzchak. That's where the Akeda took place, right? The famous, famous trial where Avram was told to slaughter his own son. He builds a mizbeach on that mountain. Of course, in the end, he doesn't kill him. But this is the 10th and most dramatic of all the tests, one of these seminal moments in all of Jewish history. Uh, significant parts of Rosh Hashanah every year commemorate this event. That also took place on that exact mountain, in the exact place of Yerushalayim, way before, way before there was a of HaMikdash. And even that was relatively modern and contemporary. After all, it goes way back before that. Hu ha'mokam she'bana bo' noach, in a <Hebrew> teva. Now, the Ramam says everybody knew. I don't know, I I don't know if I would have known if the Ramam didn't tell me, but says the Ramam, we have a tradition that when the Ark of Noah finally came to a rest after that cataclysmic flood, when, when Noah came out and wanted to thank Hashem, where was he? Exactly in that same place, in Yerushalayim. And not only that, even that's relatively modern and contemporary compared to the fact that it goes back even earlier. is <laughs> Love. Kay and Behevel before they got into a fight, uh, and one killed each other. But the children of Adam, they were already intuited, they understood that this is the place where you want to offer him his, you know, carbonos and sacrifices and offerings to Hashem. So this goes back really, really to second generation of humanity. Could it get it even earlier? Yes, it can. Because that, in fact, says the Rambam, Ubo, Hikriv Adam Harishon karbon Right, when Adam was born, he wanted to offer a sacrifice, and offering to Hashem. And where did he do it? Also there. Presumably that's how his children knew to do it there. He did it there. What could be even earlier? How could you get even earlier to, to Adam Harishon, the first person in all of humanity? And he gives a carbon. How could you get even earlier than that? In fact, you can. Says the Rambam, We know that the Torah tells us that Adam was formed... By gathering, you know, the dust of the earth, and Hashem blew the breath of life into that dust, and that turned into the form of the first human being, Adam Arishon. Where did that dirt? Where did that dust come from? Now, the truth is that there are two opinions in Chazal. Rashi brings it down on Chomish. Rashi brings down two opinions. One opinion is that God gathered uh, dust from the four corners of the earth. And there's a little bit from here, a little bit from China, a little bit from North America, maybe a little bit from Australia, take a little bit from Brazil, have a little fun, right? Bring it all together south of France. Can't forget that. All the pl- right now we have to do Abu Dhabi, right? All the different places that we'd want to be. We put it all together and that's Arma Risha. That's one opinion. But the other opinion is the opinion that obviously the Rambam thinks is even more correct is it wasn't a little bit from everywhere was specifically from Yerushalayim, specifically from the Mokam Mikdash, even specifically from the place of the Mizveach. And that's the tradition, as Rashi also quotes on the Torah, that Adam HaRishon was milked from that place, Makam Kaparaso, from the place of Kapara, the place that would ultimately be the source of atonement, because that's where the base of Mikdash was, that's where people could bring karbonos to ask for forgiveness, etc., etc. Now this is an incredible, incredible Rambam. And it is highlighting for us, perhaps even more than we realized, the Jewish historical connection to Yushalayim. So if nothing had happened in 1967, and if nothing particularly dramatic had happened in 1967, we still would have had a historic connection to Yushalayim more so than you can, I mean, I think it's inarguable than any other place in the entire world. And, we would have felt, obviously, it's not only a historical connection, but what the Ramam is obviously alluding to also is a spiritual connection. Right? This was the place that people intuited. Is the, okay, we don't exactly know why yet, but this people intuited. This is where you should bring sacrifices. This is where you should talk to Hashem. Again, eventually, Avram decides, Hashem decides that this incredible test with Avram and Yitzhak will take place there. So number one, without any reference to the modern era, Yerushalayim obviously has incredible historic and spiritual significance to the Jewish people. But, but I think it would be beyond, beyond missing the mark if one looked at Yerushalayim now without any sense of perspective on just how we were able to reacquire and liberate and give all of us free and unfettered access to pretty much all. Of and that, of course, are the incredibly dramatic events of one thousand nine hundred and sixty seven which i 'm not remotely going to try to summarize now because even though it only took place in six days, uh, it literally is the stuff of legends which needs many many books and many many movies, all of which have been happening and probably still more uh, to fully appreciate the incredible incredible story right but the basic point we know is that in the you know, In, in the Milchamer Ha'atzma'ut, in the independence war in 1948, we lost to jo- the to Jordanians half of Yerushalayim, I don't know if it's exactly 50%, but we call it half, including you know, arguably the most important parts, i.e. the old city of Yerushalayim, the Temple Mount, as they call it, the base of Mikdash, et etc., all, all, all that area, the Makmah et etc. And then in this incredible victory in 1967, uh, the famous uh, stories with Matagur and the paratroopers, right? we, we, we liberated it. Just to give a perspective perspective on that. Again, all of us know about it. There are even a few people in the room who may even remember it actually uh, happening. I'm not that old. I'm not referring to myself. But uh, there are some people uh, who actually remember it happening. I was, For the record, I was born during the next war. I was born during the Yom Kippur War. Uh, literally during the war. A few days into the war, that's when I was born. Um, but, um, but take a look at source number two. Now, source number two is, takes place some years later. It's actually not about the Six-Day War. It is a chuva of Moshe Feinstein discussing what we properly refer to as the and Entebe. The famous, famous kidnapping of the plane and the daring, the daring uh, what'd you say? Good movie. Yeah, great. Well, that's why I picked the name. Or Operation Thunderbolt. When I was a kid growing up in Camp Moshe and Wild Rose, whether when any fast day you had to spend, half the time you you know you're watching one movie, then the other movie. It had two names. You thought it was different movies. This was the same story. Operation Thunderbolt, Operation anyway. So um, this is a tshuva by Rav Moshe Feinstein about the story of somebody who was kidnapped and then he was eventually saved. Right, and he's like giving this person some religious perspective of what happened to him. Now, listen to, her, and I'm not in any way trying to minimize uh, the incredible story of the Raid at Entebbe, but just keep in the back of your mind the you know how we would consider proportionally what happened in that one event in Entebbe to the Six Day War. But says Rav Moshe about the Raid at Entebbe. Mistaber, source number two. Sheish galui. This is an unquestionable miracle, and not the kind of miracle where we just say, you know, I was looking for thirty minutes and I found a parking spot, and there's never parking available, and that's a miracle. And not even something really wild and crazy that just happens to work out, which, if you're a believer, that also comes from Hashem. And we have a term for that. We sometimes refer to as a Nes Nistar, kind of a hidden miracle. But then we reserve this term Nes Galui for biblical miracles, miracles like Kriyas Yamsuv. That's a. Says Moshe Feinstein, Uganda was nothing less. What took place there? To fly all that way and to trick them. And, you know, you know the story, you know the movie. It's a Nes Galui. ha-teva, loya El Tevar kaze. It's not possible. It's not possible to do what they did. And our says, Listen, I'm being honest, if you're a believing Jew, you have to realize, the good and the bad, the injury and the salvation, it all came from God. We don't know why. God's the one who decided that it would be okay if they got kidnapped. But of course, Hashem is the one who blessed their salvation. Shannassan, listen, look at these words, unbelievable, this is Ramosha Moshe Feinstein, you know, almost like a political commentator. Ometz verratzon. right? Who do you think gave, the, the, whether it's the politicians and or the soldiers, the courage and the will to go all the way there to save these people? And then Hashem, of course, blessed them that their actually effort should be successful. And then R. implicitly addresses a question which has been, plaguing the Jewish people uh, way before Intebi, even in, way before 1967, going back, you could say, at least until 1948, if not before that, which is, can we as religious people really be happy? Can we as religious people really thank Hashem for something that was done by them? By the friar? By the non from These people don't even believe in... You're going to tell me that's a religious thing? I should thank Hashem for people who don't even believe... You know, the whole Zionist enterprise, a secular state, you know, oh, if it was religious, then I would support it. We all know this. Says Ramosha Feinstein, not Tavagali, Ramosha Feinstein, Yes, Ramosha is acknowledging. It's a little bit surprising. Ramosha is in essence saying, if I were God, I probably would have made this all happen with the guys who are in yarmulkes. Like, that's what I would have expected. You know, like the, you know, like the, like, like the Maccabim or something, you know? The Kohanim and the religious faithful. What a beautiful message that would have been, right? That's what I would have done, said Moshe. But what could I do? I'm not God. I don't know why Hashem did it. But, also, oh, God forbid, achutzpah, l'ashum adam, lit b'kushos al But since it didn't happen the way you would have planned it, if you were writing the color war play, you would have scripted it differently. And since Hashem didn't do it the way you would have scripted it, the way you would have written it, therefore you think you're smarter than God, and it must be, since it didn't happen the way I would have done it, well, it must not be from Hashem. Look, they're not from, how, how, how could it be? I would never have done that. You're not so smart. You don't understand the ways of God. And chas shalom, how dare us think that we're, so to speak, outsmart Hashem, and that we could think differently. L'shum adam Hashem, for whatever reason, decided that the shlichim, that the representatives, the agents of these miracles are going to be through people who aren't religious, that doesn't take away from the miracle. And we thank Hashem for that. So again, you could just like, we have so much more to do, I want to move on. Because this really was just an introduction. But if this is what our Moshe Feinstein can write about so powerfully and so clearly, about one operation in Uganda, like I'm not taking away from it, it's amazing. But the Six-Day War was like a hundred of those. It was crazy. I mean, again, you, 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 you do know, and if you don't, you ought to. More than that, not you ought to. You must learn the history. It's not just that, wow, it was amazing, we got all these new places called Yerushalayim and Hevron. I mean, that is obviously very, very good. It's that before the war, the assumption by everyone, including every general in Israel, was it was going to be a slaughter for us. They were preparing the major parks in Tel Aviv to be mass graves. They ordered tens of thousands of body bags. The history is there, you just have to learn it and read it. The idea that we didn't get vanquished was already a miracle. The idea that we somehow got them to surrender in six days would have been a mi- If all, if it would just, each step, it's literally, you have to write, somebody maybe did already, I don't know. You have to write a dayenu about the six day war. Each one of the different things would have been enough to blow your mind. And yet it was all of them in six days. It's like beyond... If Uganda, if raided in Tepi is in Eskoli, what words do we even have to describe the Six-Day War? I've said before, again, I'm happy for someone to give me another example. I'd be, maybe I'm missing something, but I can't imagine something literally since the days of Tanakh as miraculous as a Six-Day War. So it's not just that Yerushalayim has a connection to the Jewish people and to the Jewish soul and to the Jewish memory historically, as the Ramam told us in source number one. Obviously, you add that background with the very fact that we were reunited with Yerushalayim in such incredible and obviously miraculous ways. So that combination, again, for anyone with a an neshama, to not be overwhelmed with appreciation and thank, you know, thankfulness to Hashem, uh, I don't even know what to say. Uh, but that's our background. Now, if we appreciate how important... In that sense, historically, and not only the historic Yerushalayim, but the modern-day Yerushalayim in the sense of the miracles in 1967, but now let's get to the heart of the matter. What exactly should our relationship be? Not just it's important, but what is the message? What is so important? That it is so important, we now understand unquestionably. But what is so important? What is the message? And I'd like to suggest that, in fact, there is a dual message to Yerushalayim. I think on the one hand, all of us intuit, and if I were to take a poll, I think most people would answer that something about Yerushalayim, as we kind of almost see hinted at in that first Ramam that we saw, all of that is somehow it's a very spiritual place. It's a place that we are able to or we feel closer to Hashem, closer to God. And in fact, I think that that is exactly the case. If you take a look at source number three, that's true. Uh, just because I started off by saying that that's what you would have thought, it doesn't mean I was setting you up to say that's wrong. It's true. It absolutely is true. Source number three, the Pesukim already tell us in the about Yaakov, and he's running away, and he has his dream, right, he falls down to sleep, and he, he has this famous dream. And what, is Hashem, what does Yaakov say? Again, this is the place. He's in Yerushalayim. He's on Mar Maria at the time too. Ein zeh kiim, beis elohim, Right? this is the source for this idea right? that Yerushalayim is the stairway to heaven right? again, do we really understand this is clearly something that's very metaphysical and uh, supernatural and uh, kabbalistic you could say or mystical but somehow even though Malo Hashem kvodo, Hashem is everywhere right? it wasn't just because Uncle Mashi said it, it was true even before he said it but there is something in a way that we cannot understand going back to You know, even before Yaakov, but this also crystallizes it in which we have more of a direct connection to Hashem when we're in Yerushalayim. Now, in particular, as we know, this takes, um, expression and has a very tremendous impact on our davening, right? As we know in source number four, right? No matter where you grew up, no matter where you lived, but when you davened, you face Yerushalayim. And the source of that is the Gemara in source number four. So this is the Gemara. Right? if you're living in Russia or in Spain or for that matter in America it's hard to say again especially before you know the modern compass S- be so precise that you're f- facing Yerushalayim but to face Israel even from thousands of miles away people knew how to do for a long time and then the Gemara says well what if I'm not in Chutzlar what if I'm in Israel Okay, now you have a shot Eretz Yisrael is really just, you know, barely, it's good to speak, you know, Mizrach, so to speak. That's okay, because you can't do better. But if you're actually already in Israel, because the goal isn't Israel, the goal is to focus on Yerushalayim when we daven. And what if a person is already in Yerushalayim? So then, okay, what could even be better? And if I'm in the base of for focus on the Kodesh Kaddashim. You know, it's like one of those Matrushka dolls. Right, you can keep on getting smaller and smaller and smaller until you get right, right, right there. But of course, the matafa, if you will, as we would say, right, the thing that's kind of enveloping everything is that it's all focused on Yerushalayim in greater and greater and greater intensity. And of course, we know that this is the halacha. And I think that this is something that is true about davening just physically. We know that every shul is set up that way, but it's more than that. Um, I think it's not just the davening and this metaphysical idea again. And there are Kabbalistic sources. I'm not. I didn't want to get into it now. That talk about how every tefillah, no matter where you are in the world, right? Your, da, your, your, your words go up and somehow they get, you know, teleported, you know, to the Kotel and then they go straight up to Shemayim. Could be. It's beyond me. I don't, you know, only a second in But But something say there are sources to talk about one day when there'll be, you know, the resurrection. That all of those dead bodies, if they're deserving to be resurrected, it all only comes out of Yerushalayim. And that's where the whole idea of Dafka people wanting to be buried in Israel is. Because Gemara says, well, the Art Adikim and people who are worthy of the uh, Triera Mesim who, who lived in Russia and Spain and all sorts of places over the centuries. So says Gemara, yeah, they're gonna have to be like on this like roller coaster ride, and they're gonna have to go through this like tunnel through it's gonna be very confusing. If you've ever been on a roller coaster, you were nauseous, right? You don't want to do that. So that's why sometimes people want <laughs> to be buried in Israel. But if you were buried who knows where, You're going to have to tunnel through. And then you'll come up somewhere in Yerushalayim and then you'll pop up. I don't really understand any of this stuff. I hope I'll deserve it or be around to see it. But I don't really 2nd understand it. But for our perspective, it all is one and the same point, which is there's something uniquely spiritual and a spiritual focus and power to Yerushalayim. And even if we don't understand it, and I'm not being presumptuous, maybe some of you do, but even if you're like me and you don't really, really understand this, but we feel it. And it's, it's, I can't, I'm not sure I can even make it in words. It's, it's it. It's again. I've said this in different contexts uh, in the shul and other places. It's one of the only dangers in making Aliyah. Because then it becomes like the Statue of Liberty to a New Yorker, right? You don't really appreciate it. It has more of a mystique when you're further away and you don't get you know that. But that's a separate nisayon. Um, but certainly at points in our life, and hopefully as regularly as possible, I'm not talking about how regularly you visit or go there, that's a different point, but that we, we get it, we feel it. When we're there, we f- we feel different. You know, there's an old uh, rabbi joke. Uh, you'll forgive me, I'm a rabbi, and I'm getting old, so I'm going to tell the joke. Uh, but there's an old rabbi joke about how he was once, you know, visiting his good buddy the Pope, and he's in Rome for some, you know, ecumenical conference or something, and the Pope says, come into my office, I want to show you, you got to see the coolest thing. And he sees on the Pope's desk this like super gilded in gold telephone what is that that's my hotline to God want to use it (laughs) he's like yeah sure so of course the chief rabbi uses the pope's phone and sure enough it's God and he asks him whatever he asks him a whole whole schmooze a whole conversation and he says you know but being a good Jew he's like I I can't accept this for free please let me pay you for that how much does it cost you know long distance it's it's a thing so he says no 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 it's on me it's on me and of course the rabbi won't give up won't give up and he insists so finally the pope says okay you know it's 10,000 lira okay Fast forward a year later, the Pope makes a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And the Chief Rabbi invites his good friend over to the uh, you know, Hechal Shlomo, wherever the seat of the Chief Rabbi it is. He says, I want to show you something. I got one too. Look, a gold phone. It's a hotline to God. The Pope says, can I use it? Sure, no problem. Calls up, speaks to God, asks him for whatever. But now, of course, the Pope, he can't be a friar. He says, well, if you paid me? No, I got to pay you? No, the Chief Rabbi says, forget it. It's not bail. You have to. It's nothing. No, you paid me. I insist. I have to pay you. How much do I owe you? One shekel." One shekel. Mine, it cost 10,000. He says, yeah, that's the difference. When I called from your office, that was long distance. In Yerushalayim, it's a local call. <laughs> so some old jokes are good jokes. Okay? But that's all point number one. That's all point number one. Yes, yes, there is some spiritual connection. We feel we can't explain it 100%. We don't understand it 100%. 100%. We're closer to Hashem when we're in Yushalayim. But... I think there's a second, perhaps lesser known or lesser appreciated, but maybe even more important, frankly, uh, dimension uh, of Yerushalayim. And I think we would be missing a significant part of the story if we didn't see this second side of the coin as well. And for this, I want to turn our attention now to source number five. And I want to present a series of questions, which I think will lead to a unified answer, which will hopefully give us that fuller appreciation of this other critical dimension of Yerushalayim Take a look, source number five. That is the Mishnah in Perke Avos, which tells us that back in the days of the Beis Amigash, there were ten different regular miracles that everyone could experience or witness. And one of the ten, and some of them are like, you know, super duper, you know, the kind you expect when you hear the Mishnah talk about a miracle. Like, you know, the smoke of the, of the, of the, of the Mizbeach from all the carbonos. It's a big barbecue. It's a big, big bonfire going on. Tons of smoke. It didn't matter what the wind was like. You know, the, the smoke went up straight. It didn't blow in the wind. All sorts of those kind of like you know, kind of miracles. But then says the Mishnah, you know what? One of them was. Amazingly, says the Mishnah, it didn't matter how many people were in Yerushalayim, No one ever felt crowded. Now, maybe on a typical day, that's not such a big deal. I don't know how many people, I really have no idea, different points in history, what percentage of the population were living in Yerushalayim. But one thing I do know, which is clearly what the Mishnah is underscoring, three times a year, almost everyone was in Ushalaim. right? They had to make pilgrimage, you know, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Everybody came, unless you had a good reason not to, but everyone came. That's millions of people in the city. It must have been overcrowded beyond belief. The pressure of the people, you know, getting an Airbnb and price gouging, and I mean, it was who can you can't even imagine right, what it could have been. That's Taka a miracle. No one complained. Jews didn't complain. <laughs> you ever see anybody at a, at a hotel? You know, they didn't get the exactly right room on the right floor with the right this. Are complaining? It was a miracle that they didn't complain, or that there was room. <laughs> that's the godly version of the of the mission Okay, but the point is, I'm I presented to you, and I just say the following. Number one is, okay, you know, again, I, I, I embellished it a little bit. I added a, a tad bit of humor, but that's really the miracle that we're going to list. This is up there. First of all, why? Like, how did that happen? I under, again, I don't really understand how God does things, but I, if, if whatever I understand about God, if he wants to make smoke not blow, he could do that. But can he make me not complain? He can make me not feel crowded? How did that work? Again, I'm not asking exactly the same way. I'm asking the question in a lot of different ways. But just the whole thing seems like, seems like we're missing something. Like, is that such an impressive thing? And how does it even work? And that's what's going on with that? That's, I guess, you could my inartfully formulated first question. Second question. There is an old, old Machlokes, an ancient debate which has brought down two opinions in the Gemara, source number six. Which, in whose tribal land? Is Yerushalayim located? Now we know where Jerusalem is. That's not the question, and we also know that when the Jewish people entered the land with Yehoshua, they divided up the land into the twelve shvatim. If you were in Shevet Don, you live there, and you were in Shevet Levi, you only had like you know you were dispersed, uh, you were a vagabond, me and my family. Uh, but if you're Yisochar and Naphtali and you, whatever he was, so it happens to be. We know that Yerushalayim is right on the border over Yehuda and Binyamin. Have their tribal lands, and the Gemara is a very old, long-running debate. Exactly, in whose portion was Yerushalayim part of Yehuda, or was it part of Binyamin? And the Gemara actually here quotes the idea that, in fact, there are two opinions. Not only about the Yerushalayim versus Binyamin, but more importantly, for our purposes, one opinion says you got it all wrong completely. Tanakama sober Yerushalayim alone at chalkal shvatim. No, it's like Washington D.C. It's not part of any state. It's not. A, it's in no man's land. And the other opinion is no. shvatim, and I will say this part was in. And then the, the second opinion says actually you draw a line, so to speak, in between, in the middle of the base of Mikdash. Part of it was on the border. You know, it's like it's like Niagara Falls. Part of it's in Canada. Part of it's in America. So the second opinion says no. Part of Yerushalayim is in Benjamin. Part of Yerushalayim is in Yehuda. But the first opinion says no. It's not in any tribe. That you draw a circle around Yerushalayim. That's no man's land. And in fact source number seven, we see that is actually how we paskin. The Brambam paskins, Yushalayim, lo n'tchalka lishvatim. There are all sorts of halachic ramifications of that, which are not important for us now at all. But again, I ask, what's, what's this about? What kind of machloket is that? It's not like about you know, taxation without representation. and you know, like, A, what's the debate about? And B, if it turns out that in fact we paskin, so to speak, that Yerushalayim is like Washington D.C. It's not any state. Why? Why is that important? Okay. Third question, which is that if you take a look at sources eight and number nine, you ever wonder where the name Yerushalayim comes from? If you Google it, in you know, or you do a search in Tanakh, it'll take a while until you find it. Like when they all those things the Ramam spoke about, like you know, ancient ancient Yerushalayim, everybody knows. Everyone knows that there was a place where all these important things happened, but it wasn't called Yerushalayim then. Where does the name of Yerushalayim come from? So it's actually, it was hyphenated. It was actually a combination of two words. Sources eight and number nine. Bracious, parachav, beis, vikr, avraham, shem, hamakom, hashem, yira'eh. Or bahar, hashem, yira'eh. Right? This is the place to see and be seen by God. Okay, that's the year part. However, in source number nine, Yadalid, Yedalid, Umalki Tzedek, Melech Shalem. And the tradition is that that area called Shalem, where Malki Tzedek was the king, was also what we now call Yerushalayim. Its original name evidently was Shalem. At some point later, you know, uh, exactly, what is it? Uh, four Prakim later, Avram adduces and articulates this other dimension of Hashem Yireh. The place that was called Shalem. Now Avram says Yireh. You put it together. What do you have? Yeru Shalem. Yerushalayim. That's where the name Yerushalayim comes from. Really? Like what? You can't just pick a name. What well, was so bad with Shalem or Yireh or something? Like why combine the two? What exactly? What exactly is going on? So in order to answer all of this, and I think give us a much more uh, important insight, really a whole new dimension to Yerushalayim that we have not seen at all until now, I want to turn our attention to a well-known idea based on a Pasek in Tehillim. It's something that probably, I think there's like multiple songs to. Our kids will be singing it probably with flags and hopefully totally behaving appropriately in Yerushalayim on Sunday. Um, and that is the Pasek in Tehillim, Parak Kuf source number 10. This is the famous, Shir Ma'al Samachdim Omrimli, This is the, the parable about Yerushalayim and Hayyu okay, Raglenu now we're, you know, we got the name. Yerushalayim is already in by the time of Davar Melech. We're definitely talking about Yerushalayim. And then what does the Postlek say at the end? Source number 10. Yerushalayim Habenuyah, right? We're all waiting for that once again. The fully rebuilt Yerushalayim. Ki'ir Yachtov. How do you translate that? It's a very well-known phrase, but I, I, I didn't check up, like, an English dictionary, an English Tanakh, but it's just not, it's not an easily translatable, uh, phrase. It's certainly not literally. Like the city, shechubra, presumably chubra means chibur, connection, la it together. What's the it? What's being connected? Not exactly clear. Again, I don't know what the mafarshi apshat, uh, say. I didn't look, honestly, but in chazal, there are different opinions as to what is Dab Hamel getting at here in this Pasuk. So one approach, which really is consistent with what we had seen previously about Yerushalayim being the spiritual epicenter of the universe, I think that's confirmed or echoed in source number 11. The Gemara Antinus describes something again, metaphysical, supernatural, beyond our kind of basic comprehension, but says the Gemara that there's an idea of Yerushalayim Shelmala in Yerushalayim Shalmata. There's a Yerushalayim in this world, the earthly Yerushalayim, that's what we're talking about, that's the city of Yerushalayim. And says the Gemara, and other sources confirm, in a way that, again, I can't say I really, really, really understand. But there is something up in heaven, a Yerushalayim Shalmala. You know, exactly how does it look? Did they get to finishing the Waldorf up there too? Because they finished it down here after all those years? Like, what exactly is happening there? I don't know. But there's a Yerushalayim Shalmala, which somehow is, so to speak, hovering over, I imagine, I assume, corresponding to Yerushalayim Shalmata. And the Gemara there says, you should just know, Hashem says, you know, as long as Yerushalayim down there is desolate, I'm not hanging out in Yerushalayim up there either. Right? I really care about this Yerushalayim down here. Okay, that's a very nice message. But how does the Gemara says, how do we even know? Who told the Gemara that there's this Yerushalayim up in heaven? Says the Gemara. That's what Davod means. Ki la That there's two dimensions of Yerushalayim which are mechubar, which are parallel to each other. What are the things that are being combined according to this opinion? The upper Yerushalayim, the supernatural Yerushalayim, and the, the heavenly Yerushalayim, and the earthly Yerushalayim down here. Now what exactly that means... I don't know. But it seems obvious to me that this is all part of that package that we saw at the beginning of this year that indicates something super-duper spiritual about Yerushalayim, Right? Now, again, I can't say I still understand it, but I, it gives me another way to formulate the idea of Yerushalayim being the spiritual epicenter or you know, this idea that all of our tefillos have to go through Yerushalayim. Yeah, because that's the gateway. It's not just the stairway to heaven. It's the gateway up there. That's how you get in. That's the Yerushalayim up there. Okay, so again, it could be, according to this opinion, that we've seen yet in the Pasak and Tilim, we see another example of everything we had previously seen. Yushalayim is a spiritual capital, the spiritual epicenter of the universe. However, if you turn over your page, you will see two other sources from the Gemara, in the Gemara in the Talmud Yerushalmi, interestingly enough, um, which actually seem to be saying in different words, but at first glance, the same thing. And one thing for sure is, neither of them are saying what we just saw. Neither of these are talking about some spiritual heavenly floating uh, invisible Yerushalayim up in heavens. Says the Gemara, source number 12, you know what it means, Shechubra layachdav. Ir shemechabereth Yisrael It's the city that brings Jews together. Or in the version, in source number 13, Ir sheosa kol Yisrael Either Shechubra milashon chibur, or, and I'm not some TikTok expert, but I assumed it's not a coincidence that the word for friend and the word for connection are basically the same word in Hebrew. Right? Chibur and chaver, Connected or friend. So in different versions of the Gemara, we're not talking about some heavenly thing. No, no. Very, very people-centric. Human-focused. We're talking about it brings people together it makes everybody friends. Now before I tease out what I think at this point, should be becoming a little bit more obvious where I'm going with this. But I just want to point out something in source number 14, which is that a number of the Mepharshim point out that on some level these actually are not the same thing. The way I translated it until now, uh, very balabatishly, very colloquially, they're saying the same thing. But as the Ma'aretz and he points out that there were people before him who made this point, um, points out, Technically speaking, it's actually not two answers, but three. Because 12 and 13, those previous sources we just saw, are not technically the same thing. Why? Because when the Gemara in Chagiga, source number 13, says that Yushlai makes everybody Chaveirim, it doesn't just mean friends. If some of you may be familiar, there's a in the Mishnah and in Halachic language, the word Chaveir has a very specific meaning. In the world, back in the day, when there was Tuma and Tahara... Carbonos, Kodshim, Trumos, and Maestros. So there were rules. that are rough, you know, maybe you, because they're roughly equivalent to what we deal with now in the world of Kashras. Who can you trust? Right? Somebody sells you barley. How do you know that he wasn't tamay and made the, 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 the produce Tame? How do you know that he, he says he took away, right? You go to the store now. It says a little, you know, you see a Tuda. All the Maestros have, you know, the tithes have been taken. You don't have to worry about that. How do you know? How can you trust them? So before there was, you know, and politics and everything else that we deal with in our day and age, in the Mishnah, there was a certain uh, system. Again, in a certain sense, it was more simple, but uh, it maybe would make modern people uncomfortable because it involved lots of judgmentalism. That is to say, if you were known to be religious and pious, you were known as a chaver. It wasn't just, it didn't mean friend. It meant like, you know, you're from. And then other people could trust you. If you were unlearned and amaretz, it doesn't mean you're say, a bad person. But the assumption being, and this is a powerful point worthy of many other shmuzes, but if you're aretz, the assumption was if you're not learned, how religious could you be? Not because you don't care, but because if you don't know, you don't know. Judaism's a complicated religion. We got a lot of laws. So basically, you might mean well, but just but can I trust the you who doesn't even know the halachos kept halachos? Imagine somebody who was not at all an accountant or a CPA said, I did, my, I did your taxes. He might have mentally tried hard. But would you trust him? You know, on an audit, you know, would you go to a person who never went to pharmacology school and says, "No worry, here's your prescription"? Again, yeah, he means was well, I'm trying to hurt you, but if you don't know, he's not likely to get it right. So, in the in general, in the world of the mission and the Gemara, Haver meant someone who is learned, and pious, and knowledgeable. Never, you could trust them when they say this is or isn't good, or you know, edible or not. So says the Gemara. What what does it mean in source number thirteen that there were times? in Yerushalayim, and especially during the Chagim, in which we suspended that rule. We said, everyone is trustworthy. Kol Yisrael chaverim, Anyone can be viewed as a chaver. Now, before I answer the question of why, we have, why would we have done that, but now, if that's what it means, it's a very technical, specific term, that's not exactly the same thing as just saying what we saw in source number 12, Yerushalayim brings people together in a Kumbaya kind of way. So how do we make sense of that little thing? But that's going to break this whole thing wide open for us in a moment. So that's what that big source of number 14 does. And the Maritz Chias says as follows. He says, really, really, really? I wasn't deceiving you 10 minutes ago, five minutes ago. When I said that 12 and, sources number 12 and 13 are basically the same thing, I was telling you the truth. As, it's, as you see there in the second line of source number 14, nearly the shneim inye nechadim. Really, they are the same thing. How so? So he explains, I'll do most of this outside, and then we'll do a little bit inside he bases himself on a comment two comments actually of the Rambam and Moreh He says the Rambam explains that Yerushalayim generally but specifically the Yom tovim and coming to the besamegosh is to bring people together to unify the people to remind them that in fact they are brothers and sisters. Now you may it may be true in your family as well sometimes brothers and sisters fight but they're brothers and sisters. So Jewish people also fight. But we forget that we're actually brothers and sisters. It says that, the Rambam says, that was really the purpose at least three times a year. You know, it's like everyone comes home to roost, right? Everyone spends Yontif together. You're with your family, with your siblings, everyone's together for Yontif. Right? You haven't seen each other in a while. Maybe the last time you saw each other you fought a little bit or who knows what. You come together for Yontif, you remind each other that you are friends. It says, the Maritz let's be honest. How much will your fellow Jew, your, fellow bro- your brother or your sister, will they really feel like they're your brother or your sister, that you really love them if you only eat, eat in their house? Right? Many of us come from blended families, complicated religious families, and he's not saying, nor am I saying, therefore you have to just, for the sake of uh, getting, getting along with your second cousin, eat whatever they served at the bar mitzvah. Obviously not. But on the other hand, says the Marist, let's be honest When you, the religious brother, the religious sister, the religious cousin say, I can't eat, that's not exactly something that fosters love and brotherly uh, and sisterly, you know, uh, connection. Now, sometimes you have hard choices in life, but let's be honest actually about that. So in light of that, she says, listen, most of the year, what can we do? The halacha is the halacha. And uh, there's, but we have to admit that it does create a little bit of a barrier. People know you won't eat at their house. That's a barrier. So three times a year, he says, we change that. Rachel, I'm going to leave the Zoom and start it over, okay? Because we're about to run out of time. So three times a year, we, um, we, we say, you know what? As the Gemara said, call Yisrael chaverim." We trust everyone. That is to say, you can eat together. And even if it's not going to their house, we're just getting together you know, for uh, Lagba Omer in a park, but I don't have to worry about the food that they're bringing and they're going to put on the picnic table the food that I'm bringing that's going to be on the picnic table and maybe my kids are going to eat the food that they brought and the kids are going to eat the food that I brought. It's all fine. Because call Yisrael Chaveim. Now why did, I why did we do all this? So let's just read the last few lines of source number 14. Beautiful. Iker Siba Alias Regal, as I said before, what was the ultimate goal? This is an amazing statement. The main goal of Aliyah al What would you have thought if I stopped right there? How would you finish the sentence? What would you have thought previously? What's the main goal of your life? To get close to Hashem. Right? You live up in the Beit Shan, and you live who knows where. Three times a year, at least see the Beit Samigdash, get close to Hashem. Again, there are plenty of sources that say that too. But that's not what he says. What's the main purpose of Aliyah Al-Regal? Khaber libo To bring the Jews together. Achtos, to bring us together. But he says, let's be honest. If you can't eat with each other, and you're suspected every person who's touching your food, maybe he's making a tummy, that's not going to exactly foster Achtos. And therefore, said the Chachamim, that was a chumrah that we told you, don't eat at someone's house. When it comes to these three regalim, these three periods of the year, we don't want that <speaking in Hebrew> we don't want <speaking in Hebrew> could I explain it and aren't there so many examples where my cousin is very understanding he knows I'm the Orthodox cousin and I explained it very respectfully yeah, you could but sometimes it doesn't work out that way first of all sometimes we don't say things in the most artful way and sometimes even when we are the most sensitive they're just intolerant right tolerance does go in two directions right just, it's true there's a lot of religious intolerance but there's a lot of secular intolerance too so it's too risky. We're basically inviting the satan to dance on our party. We don't want to take that chance. Therefore, what did the Chachamim do? Also, excuse me, namely, that therefore everyone's believed, don't worry about it. When this guy sells you or brings his wine or his oil, you could assume it was tithed, you could assume it's kosher, it's all good. And as a result, why do we do all this? HaRashus Yachad They could break bread together. They could be together. They'll be together, festive, wonderful, everyone together, having meals together. And And that way, the ava will grow. So in essence, what is Sources 12 and 13 telling us? Yes, Irshem Yisrael Zelazah, the idea that Yerushalayim brings people together is exactly what the second Gemara said when it meant, meant when it said, Chaverim. Even if you look at Chavirim in the technical sense, it's all the same point. Now, if you put all this, all this together, this is different than what we saw the first half of this year. The first half of this year, we were focusing on Yerushalayim as the epicenter of spirituality. The stairway to heaven the way we get closer to Hashem, we just feel it, our tefillos are there, and there's a heavenly Yerushalayim hovering over this Yerushalayim, and that's our pathway to God, and it's, it's, it, you know, it's all that stuff, 100%. What we're seeing now is something completely different. Yerushalayim is supposed to be that place. Again, we're supposed to get along in Beit Shemesh and in the Beit Shan and in Teveria too. But sometimes life is complicated. And one of the messages and essential tasks and purposes of Yerushalayim is to remind us that, in fact, we actually really are family. To remind us that we are brothers and sisters, and to bring us together, Shemichaberet Israel Zeh Laze. That's why. Now let's go back to the questions we asked. That's why Yerushalayim had to be like Washington D.C. It couldn't be, as we paskin part of this tribe or part of that tribe because then what would happen? We fight. It's literally a turf war. No, it's in my tribe. No, I'm better. No, you're better. I'm from her. Yushalayim's in my tribe. (laughs) You you? The answer is Yushalayim belongs to everybody. And and Lahavdu, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, this is exactly the reason why it was, and and I hope it should continue uh, because there's always fights about this, uh, that D.C. should remain not a state because the second is its own state and it's got its own interests like every other place. You're going to lose something that in theory is supposed to bring people together. So again, America's got its own problems. I'll let them worry about it for now. But the Jewish people, Yerushalayim is that way. It has to be above and beyond. I think that's, of course, now if you take a look at source number 15, the Medrash makes what is now the obvious point. Why did Hashem, we asked the name Yerushalayim, it's this conjunction, Yeru and Shalayim. So look at the last line of the, the, the Medrash describes there. Was it this, this? Is it that? Which one? Avram, Malkit da says the, the, the Medrash in the name of Hashem, last line, 15. I'll combine the names. You don't have to fight. You can come together. The very name is evoking this idea of people being Chibur and Chavirim. We can combine things. And now we can go back and suggest an answer for what the first question we had asked, which was, what's the story with this miracle that nobody felt crowded? They weren't crowded. They were crowded but didn't complain. All that. What is going on? So again, if you want me to hypothesize, I could certainly say, listen, if God could split a Yamsuf, he could also make the city of Yerushalayim expand and expand and expand. Maybe that's what it meant. It kept on physically expanding so it could contain all the people. Maybe i don 't think so. I think the med- that, that mission in Perkiovos is telling us something more profound actually, and very much in keeping with this new point that we 're making and that is as follows: What does it mean to feel crowded so you think that that's a simplistic or even a silly question what do you mean you know everyone likes their space, and you know again people who are like architects and engineers and designed design buildings or schools or whatever right they know you need to have, leave this amount of space per chair and for this, and how many people are going to be using the building, and for the fire code, everyone wants their space. Right? But it's not only a question of physical space. Whether you feel crowded, whether something is crowded in your experience, it's not just about how many people are in a delineated space. But if you think about it, it also has to do with your relationship with those people. Right? When everyone goes to Bubby and Zadie's house for Yantif or whatever, right, and all the cousins, you could give each of the cousins their own room, you have much more space. No, 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 we all want to be together in the room. Are you going to be crowded? No, because it's my cousin. Pile them in, they love it. Because they're family. When you're happy to be with the people you're with, even if you have a little bit less room, but you're not crowded, you're close. The difference between being close and being crowded. When you feel crowded, like on the subway or whatever, it's not just that there's a lot of people, it's that you don't want to be so close to those people. But if there's millions and millions of your brothers piled in, and again, if you look at the Mishnah, that was the language of the Mishnah. The Mishnah said, didn't say people weren't crowded. It said no one ever felt crowded. No one ever said, complained that they're crowded. Because it's a sleepover with my brothers and my sisters, who I only get to see a few times a year. What could be better than that? Let's all pile in together. Let's everyone go together. Let's everyone rent a villa and spend Shabbos together wherever. It's amazing. We love it. Pile in. Because Yerushalayim is not just about being closer to Hashem. Yerushalayim is where we feel and we're reminded to be closer with each other. If this is what I now believe clearly is this second dimension of Yerushalayim I think if you put it all together this is also the two dimensions which we really should be celebrating on Yom Yerushalayim I don't need to tell anybody here about the explosion of religious observance learning and growth that's happened in the Jewish world since 1967 not only because of the events of 67, but because of now the access to Yerushalayim I don't know how many thousands upon thousands of people learn Torah, and happy to say in our generation, men and women in Yerushalayim every single day, but it's not only the thousands upon thousands in Yerushalayim today. It's literally, I mean, even if your yeshiva or your seminary was who knows where, right? the spiritual engine, again, it didn't happen immediately, immediately, but certainly the last few decades, it's not even a question Right? What was true ever since, right? First, for I don't know how many hundreds of years, the spiritual center of the Jewish people was Europe. Then after the Holocaust, it was America. And the beginning of the end of the spiritual dominance of America can easily, unquestionably be traced to one thing. The Six-Day War. And ever since then, slowly, 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 and now it's not even a question, I'm not wishing bad on God forbid America. I'm saying, but the reality is the spiritual epicenter of the world everybody knows now is not America anymore. Don't tell like that. I, I really, in all due respect, I think they know, and if they didn't know, then it would be a problem. But again, if you add Lakewood, it, you know, it compensates for a lot. But the point is, the, everybody knows, everybody knows that the engine driving the world now is Israel, and the engine driving Israel is Yerushalayim. So on the one hand, this traditional, historic notion of Yerushalayim as an epicenter, which again, Jews had to take as an article of faith it was, I believe it was, one day it will be, we're living through it. A spiritual renaissance of the Jewish people, which is clearly connected to the events of the Six-Day War. I'm not even discussing something that our Salvechik and many other, speak, other people spoke about, how just the military victory gave so much pride to Jews, even secular Jews, and the whole Balchuvah movement, which started in Yerushalayim and is still primarily fueled through Yerushalayim. So that is clearly there. What was, I don't know if it's still today, but that'll be our last point, but what was also true in 1967, unquestionably, if you read the accounts and you speak to people at the time, what was unquestionably true in 1967 as well was the second dimension. And that is that the feelings of actual unity in Achtus that were felt in the, in the before, during, and in the immediate aftermath of the Six-Day War were like nothing that had been before that for as long as anyone alive could remember. And I don't know when it sort of started dissipating, but lasted for quite a while. There are so many stories, I can't even begin to tell you all, the, even the few that, that I've read, of people, even some of the most famous, Rabbanim and others, describing whether it was the actual uh, paratroopers and their feelings of brotherly love to each other and to Jews who they previously, a week before, wouldn't have even talked to. Or people going to, you know, that, that first Shavuos, that was, you know, when hundreds of thousands of people, that was the first time that people were allowed to go to the Kotel. And people without a yarmulke and people with streimlach and everyone in between hugging each other and kissing, it was, like, unbelievable. It, there's a reason that people, including, like, the chief rabbi and people like Rav Goren thought, it's Mashiach Zeit. It's, you know, because the achtos the, the was just, un, it wasn't just the, the miracles that's one point. But there was a tremendous, tremendous achtos. You know, there was a very famous, one of the most, most influential rabbonim in Israeli history is Rav Neria, Zatzal. He was one of the prized students of Rav Kook. He started the whole B'nei Akiva Yeshiva movement, major major tamachacham, and a major, major leader. So years uh, after, I don't know exactly what year this quote took place, uh, sometime actually, obviously after the Six-Day War, but he asked the following question. To me, it would be like an imponderable. I don't know if I would have asked it. Even if I would have asked it, I would never have the chutzpah to try to answer it. But he asked the following question if Hashem in his unknowable ways did intend to give the Jewish people back sovereignty of Yerushalayim, the capital city, Harabias, why do you make us wait 19 years? Why didn't we acquire, why didn't we win in 1948? Why didn't we defeat the Jordanians? What happened all of a sudden, poof for 1967, she said, now you're ready for Yerushalayim. Now you deserve it. For 19 years, I just made the greatest miracle ever. Jewish people returned to their homeland after 2,000 years but I'm not going to give you shalim. 19 years later, all of a sudden something changed and all of a sudden now we deserve shalim. I don't know if you have the thought to ask such a question. And if you're ask me, I don't know. Said Rav Neria, this is very, very famous. You see this quoted in many places. It says the answer is very simple. And historically, what he's saying is true. Whether it's theologically true, it's compelling, but only Hashem knows if, it's, if he's right. But historically, what he's saying is absolutely accurate. In 1948, we had all the various different militias that were pre state now trying to hopefully defend the new state. You had the Palmach and the Etzel and the, this one and the that one. And sure enough, in the war over Yerushalayim, which we eventually lost to the Jordanians, you had the Palmach went through, a, were fighting in a certain gate in Yerushalayim, and the Etzel was fighting in a different gate. Setter of Nariah. Had we won Yerushalayim in that battle over Jordan in 1948, there would have been tremendous fighting. Palmach would have said, We get the credit. And Etzel said, "We get the credit." They didn't always get along. There was not simple relationships between those groups. What happened in 1967? Was there a Palmach? Was there a Lehi? Was there an Etzel? No. There was just one thing: Tzva Haganah yisrael one unified army. So when the Jews come together, then we're worthy of Yerushalayim. Because Yerushalayim is not just about the stairway to heaven. It's also the home that reminds us that we're brothers. And when we're unified, then we're deserving of Yerushalayim. And I want to conclude with the following plea, since it's a secret to no one in this room, um, that we don't always feel that nowadays. And you know when exactly the glow of that achtas wore off, uh, did it last a year, two years, ten years? I don't know. Uh, but certainly now, you know, there's... A, certain degree, unfortunately, we don't no need to exaggerate it, but also no reason to minimize it. There's certainly a certain degree of uh, divisiveness between religious and not religious, and within the religious, the different hashkafos, etc. And there's literally nothing more painful in light of what we've been learning until now. There's nothing more painful than shows of machlokes and seneschinim in yushalayim. One of our first years living in Israel, we were invited to a friend of ours from Ramat Shiloh made a bar mitzvah for Mamekarek. It was a bar mitzvah. Uh, in Yerushalayim, and um, I remember uh, I actually got a ride. Don't remember why this happened, but I got a ride back to Beit Shemesh with uh, with a different neighbor. I don't know. I don't know why I wasn't with my wife or why I wasn't driving. I don't remember the specifics, but I was actually with with I think Yaakov, my son, and we were getting a ride. And as we were driving from that area of Yerushalayim back to Beit Shemesh, we had to drive through a certain neighborhood, and there was some very very antagonistic protest that was happening. And people had blocked streets, and they were burning these drums of, you know, were like on fire and billowing with smoke. It was scary, for at least certainly for a new Ola. You know, my the driver was like Israelis, like it's no big deal, eh, no big deal, right? And basically, we just kind of just drove through it. We made it home fine, and then my son Yaakov, a little kid, but you know, it's out of the mouth of babes. You know, Abba again. Then these were from people who were unfortunately doing the troublemaking. Why are such from people? burning Yerushalayim? What do you say to anybody that que- asks that question, let alone a child? There is no answer. So there's nothing worse, it's bad enough if you fight in Beit Jemesh, but there's nothing worse than if you fight in Yerushalayim. So just as a way of conclusion and with a, uh, hopefully uh, some inspiration and some guidance for us, I want to just conclude with the words of the Malbim. The, again, we're going back to that same parak in Tehillim, Parak so very well-known psukim, shalom <speaking in Hebrew> Yerushalayim And shalom shalva right. beautiful songs have been written to these words. The Tehillim speaks about shalom, peace, and shalva, tranquility. I mean, at least that's how they usually translate the two words, right? But what exactly is the difference between peace and tranquility? Right? I asked about the peace of Yerushalayim, the lovers of Yerushalayim should have tranquility. Shalom should be in the Chelech, Shalva, in your castle, I don't know, palaces. What's going on here? So it's not only the album, but I think it's maybe first or most famously the album of source number 17. He explains as follows. He says, Shalom and Shalva are actually not synonyms, there are no synonyms in Lashon HaKodesh, but two different things. Shalom, he says, is peace the way we usually use the term you know, in the news. Iran's going to attack, they're not going to attack, there's a terrorist attack, there's not a terrorist attack, can we just have peace with our neighbors? That's shalom. It's external. Shalva, he says, is panimi. Can the inhabitants of Yerushalayim get along? So now if you read the Pasuk, it's stunning. Sholu shalom Yerushalayim. You want to know, and don't we all when is there going to be peace in Yerushalayim? When will our neighbors leave us alone? When will anti-Semitism end? When will Hashem make... When will it get better? When will there be peace? The answer is, Yishlo yu ohavayich. When the lovers of Yerushalayim, when we, the lovers of Yerushalayim, have shalva, when we have the inner harmony, when we get along with each other, then we'll deserve and we'll merit shalom this is what the Ma'abim says we'll just read it inside and this will conclude in the middle of source number 17 who doesn't want to know everyone this is the, the question everyone's asking when will there finally be peace and why is that geopolitically that doesn't make any sense and the generals tell me this, and the political scientists tell me that, and the economists tell me that, what's the one thing got to do with the other? Says the Malbim, ki <speaking> iker <in> Yerushalayim, He <Hebrew> achtos HaUma." I'm sure he's not dismissing the spiritual epicenter, but he does not say that's the iker of Yerushalayim. The essence of Yerushalayim is to bring people together. ir <speaking in Hebrew> Yisrael If we have that, then we have a right to ask Hashem, where is the peace? But until we have the inner harmony, the inner peace, we have to be realistic, we're not deserving of the external peace. So let us hope that not only will Yemirtz Hashem this Sunday be an opportunity for each of us, in our own way, to thank Hashem for this incredible miracle and this gift of the modern-day Yerushalayim. And again, even though they call Yerushalayim, Don't forget about all the other miracles that took place and the military victory and everything else that happened that we're thanking Hashem for. There literally wouldn't be a state of Israel if it wouldn't have been for what happened in the Six-Day War, let alone the type of Israel that we want. But it's also an important day for us to internalize and think about the message of Yerushalayim. And hopefully, if we can internalize both of these messages, getting closer to Hashem and to our fellow Jew, hopefully the time will come soon in which we will truly have Shalom be Yerushalayim.